Perfect. Well, welcome everyone. I wish I had some superpower where I could remember everybody's name, but I don't. Um, first, let me just say it's really inspiring to see you all here today, tonight. Um, not only because we've been, like many places, in this lockdown mode because of the pandemic, so it's nice to see some people who I've seen on the Zoom room now live here, and then also just sitting together as a community is really inspiring and helps my practice as well. So it's just wonderful to see all these people in the room. It's great. Yeah. All right, so since this is Young Urban Zen, I'm going to start off with a story about a very young urban Zen master that I met uh, back in September 2012. So I was living in Tassajara uh, at the time, and um, I went to Miami, where my sister lives, because she was having a baby. She was 41 years old, so first child she's ever had, and the last. To quote her after her daughter was born, she said, I would not recommend anyone ever get pregnant. So that was the kind of frame of mind and body she was in when I arrived. <laughs> and my niece, uh, Skylar, was just a week old. And I, you know, I had spent most of my life not being around children intentionally, even though I liked them. Um, I just was never a babysitter as a kid when my friends would talk about babysitting children. I was like, you're 14 and why do you want to be around, you know, a three-year-old, right? So uh, it was kind of a whole new world for Skylar and myself because it was, you know, changing poopy diapers, staying up late, being awakened that night. I did get to, though, read almost all of the Harry Potter, so that was fun. <laughs> and she was screaming a lot, and if you're familiar with Harry Potter, I nicknamed her the Mandrake, right? That sound where you die if you hear it. So that was kind of where I was um, with the whole thing. Uh, so uh, my sister was a little bit annoyed at first, but then after like week five of the Mandrake, she's like, yeah, I understand. I, I'm with you. Mandrake, okay. So having been, having, being really new to this uh, situation, and as, as my sister was as well, as I said, it was her first child. So instead of going back to Tassahara, I decided to stay and help my sister out um, for many reasons. Uh, my mother also was there, and my sister was married, so her husband was there. And so I was feeding Skylar. I don't know if you all are around children and have your own children, but geez, we're really small, right? Like, I mean, just incredibly tiny. And so I was um, feeding her, you know, giving her this bottle, however I was doing that. I can't even remember. It's been so long. And she started to do this thing that was really interesting and fascinating. She would take the bottle, and then she would start to rub her face right here. And then she would slowly slide down my arm. And then her tiny forehead would just rest right here, like in the hammock of my arm. And I was like, oh my God, is she, is she breathing? <laughs> what, what is she doing down there? Like how? And then, you know, of course, I was stuck like that because once babies are asleep, the last thing you want to do is wake them up. So 
since I didn't want to wake her up, I just figured she knew what she was doing. <laughs> and I just let her stay there, of course. And of course, your arm gets tired, and you learn that trick. Support cushions under the arm, just in case you're in a situation, just like with your knees, you want to support your arm when you're holding a baby, especially when that's falling asleep in your uh, elbow. So, you know, so first, when this first happened, I was a little startled, and then I was kind of awestruck, because um, I'm getting to how this relates to Zen, so hold on. So, for me, it was very... awe-inspiring, because this to me was an act of faith. She didn't, you know, she didn't say, is my aunt going to hold me? Is is her arm going to be there? There was none of this consciousness at the time, because she was pre-verbal and pre-cognitive. So there wasn't this dualistic thinking. There was just this body that was slowly sliding down my arm. So, um, she was a very good Zen student because she took the formula that I offered her without any complaints. She had this routine that she followed after eating, which was sliding down my arm. And then she just rested there, right? Breathing and resting, which is what we do on the cushion. And sometimes we fall asleep on the cushion as well. So there she was, this little Zen master resting on my arm. Um, so, for me, this is, as my teacher would always say to me for many years, Zen is a body practice. Right? It's about practicing, she would say to me, practice being a body. And at first I was like, what is she talking about? It seems kind of obvious now, maybe for some of you it's obvious, but for me, um, it wasn't that obvious. Practice being a body. And when I first met my teacher, way back at uh, Austin, uh, at a retreat, I was doing the dishes, probably making a lot of noise, and then I just sort of mindlessly put this pot down, and then I felt this petite hand, because my teacher's pretty petite, on my hand, and she said, I looked at her and she said, be there for the pot. (laughs) And I thought, what is she, what is she talking talking about, (laughs) right? So, um, be there for the pot. This is a body practice. So, because Skylar was um, not verbal, and she had, therefore, she had no associations, right? With like, I don't like Heather. I don't like her arm. I don't like this formula. Like, there's none of this arising for her, right? She just was no hesitation. She just fell asleep. She just was resting. And I was reading a little bit about infants. Um, So infants, as some of you might know, they don't perceive themselves as separate from their caretakers until they're like six or seven months old. Right, so they just, they're just not one, not two with you. They don't see or feel or perceive any boundaries between the caretaker and themselves. And not only that, uh, some of these parenting sites said, they don't even recognize their own baby arms and limbs as their own, right? So there's not this sense of, oh, that's my, that's my toe, or that's, that's my cute little hand, right? Because we know how cute babies' hands and feet are, right? So they don't see themselves. They don't own, they don't have any ownership 
right? They don't perceive their body as their body until they're six or seven, which I think is really fascinating. So Schuyler was like fresh from the nowhere, everywhere, non-dual world. And um, I had this moment with her as well, where my sister and her husband were out of the condo and I was, you know, because we're so small, she was just resting here, maybe in some precarious way, I don't know, but nothing, she didn't fall or anything. And I was like doing that one hand and ante thing where I was making the formula with one hand and twisting the bottle cap off and trying to do all these things. And then I was doing that and she was resting in my arm and I turned and just stared at her and there was just this presence, this just awareness shining through. She was just pure awareness. And I felt this physical falling away, right? There's just this dropping off of something. And I, and I can feel it right now. I'm like, whoa. And then after that, I thought, I see why people have a lot of them. <laughs> you know, maybe they don't know that's why they're having them. But in that moment, I thought, geez, this is like some good crack. Just like, baby, <laughs> ego reduction, evil for baby, <laughs> samadhi, baby, samadhi. So anyway, it was fun. And it was, again, it was amazing to me to be in this little presence of this, of this precious baby. So for me, I feel like this is how we're all, you know, we're all born this way, right? I would say that we're born trusting. Right? We're, our body, our heart, mind, body is trusting, or it is trust. There's not this discrimination, this discriminating mind, and shattering mind telling us otherwise. And we see this, in, and this is why many of the Zen teachers and Zen ancestors talk about the, the natural world, right? When they talk about um, mountains and rivers and birds and it's because there is this non-dual awareness that runs through everything. Right? Or Dogen says, the wisdom that runs through everything. Right? So being in the presence of Skylar, I really felt that. I felt this beyond words connection with her. Well, of course, she couldn't speak, so I felt beyond words. She already was beyond words. So, um, And I grew up Roman Catholic, so this word faith, was something that, when I was a Catholic in my neighborhood in New York, it meant believing in this external authority, right? In the Oxford English Dictionary says it's like a belief in an authority or a belief in a religious doctrine. So for Catholics, it was the belief in many things, um, and one was the Holy Trinity of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. And I was told that if I put my faith my trust in the Holy Trinity and all the nuns and priests at the Catholic grammar school I went to, there would be salvation in this authority, this external entity was going to save me from the original sin. And I remember when I raised my hand when I was in second grade, forever dooming me and a big mark on me for asking this question. But in the Catholic um, faith, there is a, in the, in the service, the mass, they say, you know, that Jesus washed away the sins of the world. But we still have to be baptized. And so I would always, I raised my hand, I remember asking, but if Jesus took away the sins of the world, why is there still original sin? Why do I have to be baptized? I don't understand. There should be no sin in the world. I didn't really get a response. 
But um, but I remember thinking I didn't really feel like I had sins. I didn't. They didn't really ever resonate with me the Catholic um, doctrines. But this external entity, this God, was all knowing and all seeing, and also God was going to judge me and tell me whether or not I get past and put over gates and get into heaven. So after spending a number of years at a Zen monastery, which is where Kodosan and I met. For me, faith feels different than this. It no longer feels like a concept. Right? Faith feels um, like a body, a body experience for me. So it's not something to ponder or parse or debate about, or even really talk about. But since we couldn't just sit here for two hours <laughs> being bodies and not saying anything, uh, although we could, um, I have to say something. So the Buddhist scholar and a former Korean Zen monk, whose name is Mu Song, and that's M-U-S-O-E-N-G, he's a fabulous uh, Zen teacher, he says this about the word faith. Faith is not used in the Christian sense of trusting something outside oneself, but in the sense of a trusting mind. And the trust is in what has been directly experienced. Okay, so it's not a concept, it's not out there, it's what's being directly experienced here. Indirect knowledge, or prajna, and a conviction coming out of that experience and knowledge. Right? So the Zen master, the Zen teacher, Ehe Dogen, talks about turning, taking that backward step, right? To illuminate the self. Right? Looking back at our looking back, taking that gaze and looking at what's coming up for us, right? Studying the self, he would, he would say. So uh, Musang goes on to talk about different ways that this word faith has been translated. So in Japanese and Chinese, the word faith is shin, S-H-I-N. And in Sanskrit, it's shraddha, like rhymes with prada. So shraddha, rhymes with prada. Uh, in Japanese and Chinese, it's shin, S-H-I-N, to use the Roman alphabet. And the Chinese character for Shin is, uh, well, it's translated as heart-mind. Okay, so it's not just mind, it's actually in Chinese heart-mind. And uh, Musang says that the Chinese never make distinctions about the psychological and the emotional. So it's all together, like what I like to call like psycho-emotional network. And then also um, he says that there's another word that is H-S-I-N, but sounds similar for us Westerners <laughs> to Shin. But H-S-I-N is represented by a person standing upright. So this is also faith. Um, so it's faith or trust, like you're trusting somebody who's standing upright, you're trusting somebody because, they're stand because they, they, stay, they um, are true to their word, right? So you have this heart-mind and you have this trust slash faith. And also, uh, he says that the Chinese make no distinction between verbs and nouns, so it's really more like a trusting, which is kind of how I like to say it, where you could say a faith thing, right? Everything's dynamic, right? So it's not trust, and I got it, and it's over, and it's done. It's everything is dynamic, including everybody in this room. So in Zen Buddhism, as you probably may, may know, there's no doctrine stipulating that we must trust in God or believe in Jesus or whoever um, to be saved. 
So really, you know, who needs faith when there's no God expecting us and no people demanding us to believe in something? So what are we trusting in Buddhism? What do we need faith for in practicing Zen? So Dogen, who is the 13th century founder of Soto Zen in Japan, he says we're putting our faith in this ritual known as Zazen. In one of his essays, uh, Fukan Zazengi, or the Universal Recommendations for Universal Recommendations for Instructions for Zazen, Dogen says that the Zazen I speak of is not learning meditation. It is simply the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, like my niece. I think she was pretty blissed out after getting her formula and sleeping on my arm. It is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss, the practice hyphen realization, so that's together, it's not separate, practice realization of totally culminated awakening or sometimes it's totally culminated enlightenment. So for Dogen, meditation practice is not a tool that we use to attain some distant goal of enlightenment or awakening, right? So it's not out there somewhere. I gotta go get this brass ring I got to be promoted to the next stage. So for me, this is a shift. You know, this was a shift for me in practicing. It's a shift in perspective that alters our understanding or altered my understanding from, oh, I can become Buddha, right? Buddha's out there, I can become it, to Buddha nature is the ground of all being. So it's already, it's, it's inherent, intrinsic, right? The wisdom that runs through, it, through all things, it's through everything as well as everybody, sentient and non-sentient beings. So, Zazen is a ritual that expresses Buddha nature. What we're trusting or resting in is this suchness, or as Dogen says, as I've said, the wisdom that runs through all things, right? The, The true reality that's right here when our minds are not projecting onto people and places and situations, when the mind isn't running off in its little fantasy world, right? This is reality right here. There's a Chinese Chan monk who lived in the 12th century, Hongzhi, and he expresses his faith in the practice of meditation, which he calls, as some of you might know, silent illumination, right? So this is how he describes silent illumination. The practice of true reality is simply to sit serenely in silent introspection. When you have fathomed this, you cannot be turned around by external causes or conditions. This empty, wide-open mind is subtly and correctly illuminating. Here you can rest and become clean, pure, and lucid. Bright and penetrating, you can immediately return accord and respond to deal with events. So according to the Buddhist scholar and Soto Zen priest, Taiyin Dan Leighton, Hong Zhe's meditation teaching was a model for Dogen's just sitting, which is what we just did, shikantaza, this just sitting without an object of, con- of meditation, or sometimes it's called objectless awareness. And Oh, never mind, I won't say that, okay. 
Um, so I appreciate that Hong Jers begins with the serenity, right? We're sitting silently and serenely in this being illuminated by everything that's arising. But then he ends with responding to events once you get off the cushion, right? This practical, this practicality of Zen, right? We're sitting, studying the self, paying attention to what's arising, and then we're able to take that zazen mind right into everyday activities and have an appropriate response using skillful means or upaya to respond to what's arising in our lives. So seated meditation is then not just an expression of our true nature, but also the foundation from which we can respond to all these trials and, tri trials and tribulations from a place idealistically, if you will, from this place of non-separation. Okay? But even if we're a little less separated each time is, is helpful, right? I mean, whenever we can respond to what's arising, especially if we're feeling some distress with a little more spaciousness here, we're often met with less defense or less resistance from maybe the person we're interacting with, right? So the more that we can, be, we can feel spacious here, not a suppression, but allow some of that agitation to fall away a little bit before we speak or act. Of course, that's not always um, possible. So faith uh, is, also one of the, is also the first of the five spiritual powers or faculties, you know, faculties of mind. So, you know, when we're meditating, uh, I like to make a distinction between attention, which is a faculty of mind that we can cultivate, and awareness, which for me is, I don't know. <laughs> um, so the other four spiritual powers are vigor, vigor, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So faith is what animates our aspiration to focus our mind's attention on cultivating the other four faculties, of course, and also raising this thought of enlightenment, or at least stirring bodhicitta, right? Where the mind is awakening, the heart-mind is awakening, and wanting to be of benefit to others, right? This sort of, this, at least for me, it was this, this stirring of wanting something deeper than what I was doing in my life, than my nine-to-five, my nine-to-five job. So we could engage in a chicken and egg debate about what comes first, faith or practice. So, you know, do we come to Zen practice because we feel something like faith bubbling up from the depths of somewhere? Or do we begin to have faith once we start to practice? So one scholar says that faith in early Buddhism was understood as a faculty or power, as I just mentioned, of the mind, which, which one first comes to react when she hears the Buddha Dharma. So basically meaning when I hear the Buddha Dharma, there's faith, and then I want to do something. And what do I want to do? I want to take refuge in the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and I resolve to become enlightened. Well, um, I don't know about you, but that's not what brought me to practicing Zen. What brought me to practicing Zen was a desperate desire to be, have some, have some relief from suffering. Right, what maybe the Christians would call salvation. Although that was never framed for me like that growing up. I didn't really, I mean, now I would say, I don't like the word sin, but 
to me, I would say like the karmic conditioning that causes harm to me that I inherited from my parents and their parents and their parents and their you know all the way. Epigenetics says seven generations of trauma is passed through us and affects our genes. Um, so I never experienced any salvation or any freedom from suffering when I was a Catholic. For the way I was raised, it was my cross to bear, right? That I that suffering is a human condition's cross to bear. Of course, it's the woman's fault because Eve made Adam eat that apple, and now we have this original sin, and we can never get rid of it. At least that was my understanding of Catholicism. Um, so I never felt that my belief in the Holy Trinity ever led to uh, alleviation of suffering in my childhood. So um, when I came to Buddhism, there wasn't this idea of enlightenment. I never thought about faith. I was felt more like I wanted relief from what was going on in my life. And um, even though I didn't really resonate with Catholicism, I think I had my first experience of silent, silent illumination there, sitting in the empty church. We had a very ornate church in the parish where I grew up uh, outside of the Bronx in New York. And I remember just sitting there. Back then, you could just walk in. Nowadays, I imagine it's locked. But you would just be able to walk in, and I could sit on those very hard wooden pews. But there was just this quietude there. And the light was streaming in from the stained glass windows. And there was the shiny crosses on the altar. And we had this very deep, plush uh, red carpet that led up to the altar. And I remember just feeling relaxed while I was there, feeling connected to something. And then it smelled like incense. So that was also just, yeah, helped me maybe drop out of my mind a little bit and just be in the quiet. And of course, in that house of worship, there is something about people like all of us right now gathering together, although I don't think necessarily that we're worshiping. Maybe, ooh, as I say that, I'm like, worship, where does I feel that? But we're coming together to practice together, right? To support each other in studying the self, being with each other in this way. And that also, of course, is how churches serve their communities. Um, so being there in that, even though I didn't buy into the dogma, what I consider dogma, I did, you can feel that energy of worship in the church, even when it's empty. It's just, there's that energy there that was palpable for me. So I would say that although faith is not what propelled me to seek out Zen practice, it's definitely what's kept me going. And I actually prefer this word trust or trusting because faith still has a little bit of a negative connotation for me. Again, thinking that I need to be having faith, giving somebody authority over me. So for me, this trust, this trusting is not a blind belief in some transcendent otherworldly experience. It's actually a trust that's grounded here in the physicality of this present moment, right? The direct experience and knowledge and I remember when I was sitting, uh, when I first met my teacher, well, I don't know if it was when I first met her, but I was, 
I would, every time she came to Austin, I would go to the Austin Zen Center and I would sit. And I remember in practice discussion with her, <laughs> I'm laughing because, because it's funny. Um, <laughs> and I'll tell you in a moment, and you can tell me if it's funny or not. But I'm thinking about this because, uh, you know, when we're sitting here, what are, what are some of the experiences that you had while you were sitting here? You want to just, you just popcorn them? Am I speaking, is that, we can't do that? You can do it. Yeah? Noise and layers. Noise and? A, a release in layers. A release in layers, okay. Great. Anyone else have, a, have an experience? Physical discomfort at times. Okay, physical discomfort. Yes, me too. Planning. Planning, okay. Planning. Nate's got the planning mind, okay. Settling. Settling. Sounds, right, voices, cars, wind, the air. Self-gratitude for like, getting somewhere that I want to. Gratitude, yeah. I, mentioned, I asked this because when I was sitting across from her, and she was trying to get this point across, which was, so I was telling her about all the things that were going on in my head, all these stories, and blah, 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 da, 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 da. And she just said, well, what else was happening? I was like, I don't know, nothing. Like, there was birds outside, I heard some cars, but, you know, and then I just kept getting back into my head, telling her all these stories. And she's like, well, what, what are the birds? You know, what, what are the birds? What are the car sounds? I'm like, I don't know, they're nothing. She's like, that's reality. They're not nothing. That's truer than what's in your head. I'm like, no way. No way. Really? And I think she like swatted me with something nearby. I was like, and I was like, really? That's, you know, and that's how clueless I was back then. You know, it was just like, I mean, clueless. I mean, I'd done a lot of therapy, so I was very much here. I knew all, you know, lots of psycho-emotional stuff I knew. But she's like, that's reality. That's what's happening right now in this moment. And um, Paul Haller, who some of you might know, he was the avid here for a long time, and he's still the senior Dharma teacher. And he um, said, he had this great line, he said, making the present moment more relevant, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was speaking with Tia, my teacher, in that moment, for me, the stories, there was so much mental agitation, so much chatter, that was kind of drowning out the physicality of what was happening. And I was just dismissing cars and birds, but this was so prominent for me. I call it briar patch, you know. And the thing about briar patch is this. Oh wait, here's my briar patch. So on the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, very determined to attain enlightenment. So Mara, the god of delusion, as many of you know, god of delusion shows up, I'll call Mara Briar Patch. And Mara says, tries to tempt Buddha, or at the time he wasn't Buddha, he was Siddhartha, Gautama, um, with greed, hatred, and delusion, right? His three daughters trying to get uh, Siddhartha to move from his seat, to let go of his aspiration, to attain enlightenment, to, to plumb the depths of lies that were suffering, to be free from suffering. And so, of course, Buddha, the Buddha-to-be, did not move from his seat. 
And then Mara finally, you know, exasperatedly, I don't know if that's a word or not, says, you know, who are you to sit there? Who are you to defy me? And the Buddha touches the earth, right? That earth touching mudra. And for me, that's what kind of what Tia did for me in that moment. She's like, right here, it's what's coming through the senses, keeping the mind tethered to the physicality of the present moment is one of the ways that practicing zazen helps us because it brings us out of that briar patch, right? This Mara that my niece didn't, wasn't experiencing, right? She was new, fresh, right? So, so this way that the mind can take over and be uh, so, come up with so many stories, fantasies, projections, right? So when we come back, when we bring the mind back to the breath, back to the body, back to, as Tia would say to me, keep your mind in the room, at least, <laughs> you know? If you're gonna make up stories, maybe it's about the person next to you instead of your first grade teacher or somebody in high school, right? At least try to keep it here, closer, 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 right? Um, all right, so. So for me, that's how I, I for me, that earth witnessing mudra, I also sort of feel, and I'm not sure if this is accurate or not in a scholastic way, but for me, it also feels like Buddha was saying to Mara, well, A, you're not real, right? It's this personification of delusive thinking. And B, or maybe A hyphen B, or drop the A and the B if you want. But this, Mara, you are from the same source. You know, agitated mind isn't, isn't different from the source of a mind that's in stillness. Agitated mind doesn't come from somewhere else. Right? It's same source. He's touching the earth. This is it. This is the one source. Right? Everything arises from right here, from the same source. Touching the earth. This, this is my witness right here. I get to stay right here while you spin around, Briar Patch. And, and also for me with Briar Patch, Mara, we think when we're engaging it that that's connection, right? Mind's like, hey, pay attention to me. I want to tell you a good story. Oh, I know I've told you this 6,000 times, but one more time. I want to see how agitated you can get. But as soon as we engage Mara, that's already disconnection, right? But Mara has us think that that is connection, that we should put our faith, our trust, in, in these stories, right? in this, this, this elusive thinking that uh, hides, if you will, or covers our true nature. And my niece Skyler had, had none of those thought coverings or walls of mind, as it says in the, um, in the Heart Sutra. So, um, you know, the Buddha says to be a lamp unto ourselves and to seek salvation alone in the Dharma. And this Buddhist scholar, uh, Masao Abe, he says that this is not contradictory. The Buddha says, a lamp, be a lamp unto yourselves and seek salvation alone in the Dharma, that they are complementary. So one, and this self is uh, an ultimate self-reliance, but not on our small mind or small ego, but on our capital T, the true self, right? That wisdom that runs through all things.
So I'll just end with a verse from a very famous poem called Trust in Mind, or Shin, Shin Ming. It was written by uh, the third ancestor of Zen, Sen Song, who lived in the sixth century in China. And if you haven't read it, I um, highly recommend it. The Korean monk, who is no longer a monk, Mu Song wrote it. It's called, he calls it Trust in Mind. And it's really profound, has a lot of profound insights into the nature of reality and also practical guidelines about how we can live from a place of less separation and how we have a more equanimous and fulfilling life when we trust in this one mind of Buddha nature. Faith is non-duality. Non-duality is faith. Here words fail, for it is beyond past, present, and future. And if my niece could have spoken, I think that's what she would have said. Because we all are beyond words, and we all are beyond past, present, and future. Thank you for being here tonight. That's my signal that I'm done, Kono. Thank you very much. Is this subtle enough? Mm -hmm. Crystal clear. Crystal clear? Yeah. So thank you for your attention.